Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I don't know about you, but after my last interview with George Will, I can't seem to get enough of conservative commentary. This week, we're at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater in Lower Manhattan for The Public Forum, a series of conversations pairing someone like me, I've been connected to the public in various ways over the years, with a voice from outside the world of theater. Today, I'll be speaking with one of the leading public intellectuals of our time. David Brooks is a writer whose political opinions and judgment are so revered that he often gets calls from the White House in anticipation of a column. At the same time, he's also willing to say things like, quote, every kid should take a course on how to choose a marriage partner, unquote. Few topics are off-limits to Brooks. He's been a New York Times op-ed columnist since 2003. He's known as a conservative voice. Brooks was a senior editor at the Weekly Standard, but former Obama advisor David Axelrod described him as a true public thinker. I was lucky to have David Brooks join me on stage in New York City. Joe's Pub is cozy. It seats just under 200 people who are eating and drinking throughout the program. The pub sits right on top of the subway. Sometimes you can hear and feel the train rumble below. Take a listen to some of my conversation with David Brooks recorded last week on October 1st at Joe's Pub as part of the Public Theater's Public Forum series. Thank you all for coming, by the way. I didn't, uh, I don't have as much time to read the op-ed page of the New York Times as I'd like to these days because of my schedule. So I thought to make it easy, I would just invite someone and hang out with someone <laughs> who writes for the op-ed page and kind of get a whole kind of a, 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 the background of what I've been missing in political opinion. But thank you very much to David Brooks. And it's okay. I haven't seen 30 Rock in months, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You better hurry because we're off the air in January. <laughs> um, anyway, I just wanted to begin by asking you just first to describe your own background and where you grew up and... What was politics in your life when you were in uh, high school and beyond as an undergraduate? Yeah, so I grew up here in Stuyvesant Town, not too far away from here. 
I grew up in a somewhat left-wing background. Uh, when I was five, in 1965, my parents took me to a B-in uh, <laughs> in Central Park where hippies... That explains everything, actually. Yeah, where hippies would go to just, you know, be. Uh, and so one of the things they did was they set a garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate their liberation from money and material things. And I was five, and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can, and I ran up and grabbed it and ran away. And so that was my first step over to the right. And, and then even closer to here, I, uh, my father was teaching at NYU. I went to Grace Church School, where I, I was part of the all-Jewish boys davening choir. So we were about 50% Jewish, and we'd sing the hymns, but we wouldn't say the word Jesus to square it with our religion. So the volume would drop, and then it would come back up. And so I grew up here, went to Philadelphia, uh, then went to college at the University of Chicago, the school where fun goes to die. Uh, yeah, what did your dad teach at NYU? He taught English literature. We were part of a culture in New York Jewish circles. The culture was called Think Yiddish, Act British. <laughs> and so you were very Anglophilic. And so he taught Victorian literature. And actually, this is true. In, in my grandfather's generation, all the Jews wanted to fit in. So they gave themselves names which they thought were super English. So nobody would think they were Jewish. Like Ian. Well, no, they picked Irving, Sidney, Milton. <laughs> uh, and so it didn't really work out. What did you study in Chicago? I studied American history. The other thing about Chicago was, if I can get this right, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> and so, but actually I began to turn there. So how did that evolve when you were in Chicago? Yeah, so I was a lefty and I was assigned a book called The Reflections in the Revolution in France by uh, Edmund Burke. And here's a guy saying, you know, you really shouldn't think for yourself. The power of reason is weak. What you should do is rely on the just prejudices that have survived the test of time. And I just loathed that book, that idea, because I thought, I want to think for myself, I want to come up with my own ideas. But as I got older, and especially I became a police reporter covering crime, murders and rapes in the south side of Chicago, uh, I began to see that he's right, our power of reason is weak. And part of the core of my conservatism is a phrase, epistemological modesty. The world is incredibly complicated, we can't know much about it, we should be very suspicious that we can plan. And then I, I covered really horrible housing projects in Chicago, Cabrini Green and others. And Legendary. Yeah, and so to me they were part of the unintended consequences of pretty bad welfare policy, right. which enabled families to break up and, and tore down good neighborhoods. What year was that when you were that covering was in Cabrini the, Green? Uh, that was the early 80s. And so I, I became more conservative of a certain sort. And would you say that alone, like kind of failed urban policy, well, or were was, there other things as I well? I mean, it was part. I mean, it was partly. I mean, it was a period of incredible social decay. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at all the social indicators; they really, starting about 1965-70, they just collapse. Right. Divorce, drugs, crime, and so you're growing up in that, and you think, "What's going wrong?" But did you think that? I'm sorry for spitting on you. Um, okay. Even from this distance, I can <laughs> actually spit on you. Um, I'm used to it in, the, uh, in this part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I would never spit on you intentionally, I would just say. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, do you think the people that are more left-leaning, they're the ones who'd say drugs, divorce, crime are the results of other failed social policies and those policies preceded that, that those things are, are symptoms of something which has failed uh, public policies in terms of jobs and fairer taxes? And yeah. did, did you think that, that some of the problems that we're facing our society in the 60s and 70s were the results of other bad policies that might have some conservative yeah, fingerprints well, on them as the, well? I've gotten more educated about it since. And I think the sort of the classic 
more liberal position is uh, William Julius Wilson, a sociologist at Harvard. He said the real problem was all the urban jobs went away. And when the jobs went away for the working class, then the social decay came. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I would say there was also a breakdown in social mores. They should stick around. Well, the two went hand in hand. And they, that's exactly my view now, that they became a spiral. And so now, you know, I had a conversation with, I always have conversations with, let's say, senior administration officials. And I say, you know, the, the breakdown in the family, 40% of kids are born out of wedlock right now. If that remains true, and every, we all know people who are born with single parents and they're doing great, but the odds are higher. And so I say, with, if that remains true, then 30 years from now we'll have more inequality than we do now, and the skills gap will be greater from that fact alone. So why don't you take on family policy? And if you're going to do it right, you've got to do it in two ways. One, you've got to encourage people to get married and stay married and not have kids until they get married, but you've also got to make, give men money so they're worth marrying. And that's basically the problem. Right. You've got to give them earned income tax credit or some other wage subsidy. You've got to well, do and by both that you mean things. also give women money so they're worth marrying. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, well, no, see, I... Yes, I heard... you did mean that. You just don't know it, but you did mean that. <laughs> We're here Don't try Joe's to make me popular. And... Uh... <laughs> I'm just trying to make you more popular than you already are. When I think one of the reasons why marriage is falling apart, it's mostly, I think, on the male side. Right. Uh, when you talk about, you know, the decay of the family and so forth, and you talk about, I mean, do you have any particular opinions about birth control? So, well, I, I might have a little different view. I mean, first on social issues, I'm still as left-wing as the day is long on the, I'm, I'm not only... For example? Well, so I'm not only for supporting gay marriage, I'm for coercing gay marriage. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we should say, are you guys married yet? Are you married yet? You guys should get married. But say on, in Africa... You know, I was at a village in Mozambique a couple of years ago where there were no adults. There was grandparents and kids. All the adults were dead from AIDS. And so you ask the grandparents, are the kids replicating the behaviors that killed their parents after they nursed them to their deaths? And they said, yes, they're doing all the same stuff. And so the question becomes, how do you change that behavior? And the short answer is, you give contraception and you try to change behavior by lectures at the same time. But who's been most effective at changing behavior? In my experience, it's not us Westerners with our technical expertise, it's the church. And the church will say, it's about your soul. Here's how you should live. And one of the reasons so many, the religions there, the Protestants and the Catholics are so incredibly conservative is because they need that ammunition to change behavior. And if you don't follow these rules, your soul is, is damned. That I find pretty persuasive as a way to get people to change their behavior when you're living with a life-threatening disease. But they haven't been successful, have they? Well, it's, it's hard. I mean, the Catholics are opposed. I mean, the, the Catholics in terms of the brass, if you will, of the Catholic yeah. Church, they're opposed to, to, uh, to contraception. Yeah, though... That's what the very I, issue I found, I'm talking right, about. That's, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my problem. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. I guess my point is they're opposed in theory, but you go into a Catholic mission in, in Namibia or anywhere... And the rubbers are sitting right there on the table. They don't have the luxury of being abstract about this. And they say, if you've got a 13-year-old kid who comes in, you preach abstinence. If you've got an 18-year-old, you can hand him a rubber. Right. I want to make out that check. I want to write, pay to the order of the Vatican, $10,000. And in the memo, I want to write, for rubbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And send that <laughs> off to Rome. Just to see what happens. Just to see what happens. Um, now, from Cabrini Green, where do you go? 
What happens after uh, well, you? so you're, you're in Chicago thing, for how much longer? So we all have these weird things that happen in our lives. While I was in, at college, I wrote a humor column, which is hard to believe if anybody reads my current column, I know. Uh, but no, I think you still write a humor column. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Some of it's pretty funny. Yeah. That, and then I was trying to be funny. And so William F. Buckley came to campus, and I wrote a piece calling him a name-dropping blowhard, basically. And so I said, you know, he wrote the first three volumes of his memoirs on the day of his birth. All of human history up to Buckley was this glorious dawn. And then he, in college, he founded two magazines, one called the National Buckley, one called the Buckley Review, which he merged to form the Buckley Buckley. And so it was all just one joke after another. And he came to campus, and he gave a talk to the student body, and he said, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. And so that was my big break. Now, sadly, I wasn't in the audience. And I, I, and, and I, and I wasn't that conservative. But three years later, I was drifting a little to the right, and I called him up, and I said, is that job still open? And he said, yeah. And so literally, from 24 hours, I was covering a murder on the west side of Chicago, 24 hours later, I was up at his Park Avenue apartment having dinner with finger bowls. Uh, and I, you know, I thought it was watery soup. Uh, and, but so when you, get, when you became his associate editor, you became a pseudo-son for a year and a half. So he took me yachting, he took me to Bach concerts, he asked my opinion. And so it was one of those magical experiences where you have a guy who's a real mentor. And so I worked at National Review for a year and a half, and he was... What did you admire most about him? Because uh, many people who work with, have worked with him have speak glowingly yeah. about him. But was it yeah, you so, admired most about by him? By the way, incredibly diverse group of people, Joan Didion, John Leonard, a True. lot of people. And so his greatest capacity was his capacity for friendship. Beyond so, partisanship. Uh, if you went over to his house for dinner, first of all, there were not that many conservatives there. There were not many political people. It was writers mostly. Anatole Broyard, a literary critic, was a... Thinkers. Yeah. And so we, we never talked about what the tax policy was. It was what Dostoevsky had written about this. One of his biographers estimated he wrote more personal letters than anybody else in the 20th century. He was one of these guys whose brain just couldn't stop. Output had to be coming. He wrote all these letters, cultivated all these friendships. And so it was an intoxicating experience to be 23, 24. And you worked for him based in DC or here? Here. How long were you with him? About 18 months. And then what happened? So then he sends me off to start my career and I went and became a movie critic at the Washington Times, and then I came, became a book review editor at the Wall Street Journal, and then a movie critic for the Wall Street Journal. Who owned the Washington Times when you were doing the movie criticism there? The Messiah. The Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, the Reverend Sun. The Reverend Sun. The late, the late, yeah. the late. He was great. a big movie fan, Sun Young Moon. Yeah. He, he liked movie, was he like a Jennifer Aniston fan? What was his ill? No. Where did he go for? It was more Hunt for Adam Red Sandler. October, that sort of thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, actually, yeah. he funded a movie. He was I a think great he man. funded um, Pearl Harbor. He funded some movie that bombed. And so... I was in Pearl Harbor, and it did bomb, actually. Oh, really? Is that true? Yeah. No, but thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> well, you, you asked me for Reverend Moon. Well, what was it like there. writing movie criticism for... for I mean, the, the, the Washington Times is a, is a very, very conservative paper. Yeah, though and, I and, must and, say, and, when and, I was there, we had a, a very talented staff. So Malcolm Gladwell was one of my co-authors. And so you're good Pratt, writers. Writes, yeah, so and you we, were untouched. You, you were free to write whatever you wanted. Yeah, and I had the best interview of my life until this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was with um, Jackie Gleason. Right. And he was just about the funniest person I ever met in my life. No, no, when you wrote movie criticism, was it the classic thing where, like, uh, the movie critic died and you were writing the gardening column and somebody <laughs> said, kid, you're the movie critic? Uh, I, or, like, I forget like, what, like, what, what That what, happened what, to me at the Wall Street Journal. What was your Journal. passion for film? 
Well, I, I, I kind of resent right now that you were the movie critic for the Washington Times because what was your background in film? You were covering murders in Cabrini Green. <laughs> I had a what PhD happened? in film from USC, and no, I didn't. Because of my rich social life at the University of Chicago, I saw a movie almost every night. <laughs> uh, and, and so I recall in one 11 week period, I saw 77 movies. And I. I You're kidding. I would do my homework from 7 to 9, go to the, move, the student thing. We had an outstanding film thing. I'd go, and then I'd go to the bar. That was my life. Yeah. So you I lo- didn't, you we didn't films. really have friends. Yeah, I did. And that lasted films. 18 months. Why did that end? Because uh, I got hired by the Wall Street Journal to come up here. Okay, so how do, how do, you, okay. how do you go from the Washington Times writing film to the journal? Because Who I got a, that? a good piece of advice, and I don't know if you followed this, but never say no to anything. Say yes to everything at least at a certain point in your life. I said yes to Pearl Harbor, and I would do better. <laughs> really well. <laughs> I have forgotten I, I have to beg to differ with I, I, <laughs> I said yes to a lot of things I shouldn't have said but, yes to. Yes, but, but we're in a different but business. Probably, so. <laughs> the credo in my business is say no until you have to say yes. But go ahead. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, okay, but go ahead. Well, we, so we never we'll, say no, and who rang your bell for the Wall Street Journal? Who came after you? Somebody asked me to do a piece on economics. And because of my deep background in film, I wrote an essay on economics. Uh, and, and the editor of the Wall Street Journal saw it and liked it and, and called me up and said, we need a book review editor. So I, I edited the book review section, and then I went out and covered... From D.C.? From New York. And then I went out and covered the decline of the Soviet Union. For five years, I was in covering half the world. I Traveling? Covered, yes. I lived in Brussels, but I covered the Soviet Union, uh, Mandela coming out of prison. Were you married at the time? I was married at the time. So you have a very patient wife. If I told my wife we were moving back to Brussels, she would put an axe in my head. Right. <laughs> so. You were at the Journal for how long? For nine years. And then where do you go? So then I go to the Weekly Standard, a conservative magazine owned by Rupert Murdoch at that point. What was that like? That was the best experience Murdoch's of my life. Murdoch's a lot like Buckley, people say. People who know Murdoch personally, they all say that he's like Buckley. He's this very charming, very, you know, uh, uh, devoted to his friends, you know, very... Uh, was he that way when you worked with him? Uh, I confess I never talked to him. Right. <laughs> and the one time I did was at a party and he mumbled. I couldn't understand what he was saying. But, you know, the problem with writing, especially my current job, it's solitary. And so at the magazine, it was all my friends getting together to write a magazine. I was here for a panel about a, a year or two ago, and we were backstage, and it was like, you, I, it was my little glimpse of the theater world. It was like group hugs. And I remember there was even tissues out on stage here in case we started crying. And... and, and, and Believe me, if you go to the Brookings Institution and you're, you're doing a, a panel on tax policy, there's not a lot of group hugging. Uh, and so I sort of, at the magazine was my closest experience to being part of a team, putting on something together as a group. And so I really liked that. Well, be, being on a team that way and being and having that kind of collegiality with people is really... Um, I'm going to come and do a play in New York in February only because it means like I'm literally starving for the oxygen of being part of an ensemble and being part of a work where the best work is done when we all do it together and integrate it together. Now, if you're in the theater, can you put on a good production if people don't like each other? Do, they have to, do people have to pers- genuinely I like each other? I think in the other? theater because more, presumably more thought goes into... The, the, the piece. Like, well, we did Streetcar on Broadway in 1992, and Greg Mosher said the great line. He said, well, we know the material works. If we bomb, it's us. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like we know, like, when yeah. you do revivals. Yeah. If you do original pieces, it's different. But then from Weekly Standard, what happens? Uh, so you were then, there for how long? I was there also for nine years. Uh, and nine I was, years? 
Yeah. What evolved for you during that? Were you traveling all around the world at that time? I mostly, a little. I did a lot of Middle East stuff. And I wrote a book called Bobo's what in Paradise. What years was that? That was uh, 96 to 2003, or if I've got the numbers right, 95. So you're weekly standard when 9-11 happens? Yes. You're I, weekly standard at the end of the Clinton years and the beginning of the Bush years and 9-11 and the war. That's uh, yes. So you were there I, during the a war very... might have turned when I was just joined the Times, but it's somewhere around. You were there during the Clinton. If I mean, think about that. Yeah. You're there during the Clinton impeachment. Yes. Yes. Bush is elected. Yes. 9/11, the war in Iraq is declared. Yes. How did your politics evolve during that time? <laughs> um, well, I married Ken Starr's daughter, and no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to say this, and it's not to curry favor, but it's on the record. If you go back, I was doing a show called The News Hour on PBS, which I still do, and on NPR and all things considered. I was not a big impeach Clinton guy. Right. I'm basically a believer. I'm sort of an older style conservative that human nature is extremely complicated and flawed, and a lot of people do a lot of horrible things, but they can still be serve their purpose yeah. in society. They can still run GM. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Um, Having said that, uh, to turn it the other way, I definitely supported the war. Yeah. Why? Uh, because yellow cake, all of it, and even the, even with all the <laughs> no, Valerie no plane, with all, 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 the, all the Valerie claim, all that hocus pocus, you still supported attacking Iraq. Uh, Why? Yes. yes. So I basically, you know, I covered the Middle East a bunch. I basically thought, you drive through small towns in Jordan and Egypt, and it's just deadly dull, and these people have no lives and no prospects because they live in stagnant societies overseen by oligarchs or worse dictators in the case of Saddam Hussein. Some of whom we created, correct? Absolutely true. But I thought if that part of the region is ever going to be healthy, they have to have normal societies where young men and women can rise and have normal lives. And do you believe that in pursuit of having that normal society, in pursuit of, because whenever anybody says they want to, uh, this was about, you know, uh, exporting democracy to an area and so forth. I mean, I, I support that in theory, but I think that in practice with the Bush administration, that was complete bullshit. Um, they, they had, they, I mean, I just for one, I, I never for one second, I bet everything I own that Dick Cheney doesn't roll over in bed and his wife says, Dick, what's wrong, darling? And Cheney says, God, I can't sleep. I just, I've got to export democracy to the Middle East. <laughs> We've just got to get this thing done. I really, I care so much about these people. I, Lynn, I'm sorry. Let me get up and go get a glass of water. I've got to figure this out. So, I mean, to me, Iraq was about what we ultimately got to. And this was, you know, now the war had moved on to Afghanistan and the press had moved on to Afghanistan. And what was underreported was they lifted the ban on the U.S. oil companies coming in and pumping oil there, which was their ultimate goal. Right. Well, so what, I what's your opinion that. about that? So, first of all... Okay. Uh, you disagree I, that that happened? Or you disagree that was the goal? I disagree that was the goal. I don't know anybody in the oil business who wants instability. Saddam was pumping oil. They had a stable market. That's what they wanted. I never heard of any oil company, anybody in the energy business, lobbying for the so war. So why they did they go after Saddam? And it was if, oil, if, if, if Saddam was pumping oil, and we knew that he wasn't making uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction, oh. you still think, you think he might have been? I think we thought that at the time. So, here, so I would say there were multiple schools within the Bush administration. There was the Cheney-Rumsfeld school who did not, you're right, did not care about democracy. They were afraid of the weapons of mass destruction. They were afraid that he would pass them off to some terror group. And so they bought the whole yellow cake thing. Right. 
They, they both, yes. Right, that, okay. that, that he might, he, he wanted to do it. He wanted to pass them off. And so did the Clinton administration, by the way. Right. And so that was their reasoning. They did not want to establish democracy. They wanted to get in, take them out, get out of there. The other people, I think mostly including President Bush, but a lot of other people like Wolfowitz, they wanted to do the human rights and democracy thing. And so I think those were the two factions. And the problem was faction, democracy, and human rights champion the war, faction, let's get out, fought the war, or planned the war, and as a result, it was a big screw-up. You know, the war has had a huge effect on me in the year since, and so I mentioned Edmund Burke earlier, that be careful what you can plan because societies are extremely complicated. And so I'm sitting there, I'm torn before the war, I'm thinking, I really think we need to help promote normal societies, not democracies, just normal societies. But then Edmund Burke teaches me, don't go in there. It's way more complicated than you think. And so I have this little internal debate. And I wrote a column at the time, said, oh, all these concerns, Burke wouldn't like this, Burke wouldn't like this. And then the last paragraph I said, but we got to do it anyway. And so I think that last paragraph was probably wrong. And I know this is a bogus question, but I'll ask you anyway, because I think you'll have an interesting answer to this. And that is, if we had it to do over again, what would you do differently? Would you go to Pakistan instead? Uh, <laughs> I know I would. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't go there now. I, I, um, no, I'm saying from the beginning, back in 03, I would have gone to Pakistan first because that's where they all were ultimately. Yeah, well, the you ones think, we were you after. think Iraq is complicated. I mean, Iraq, Iraq was, Iraq, Iraq, Iraq Iraq was not behind 9-11, and Iraq was not a, tra a training ground of al-Qaeda. Yeah. For, for what the stated purposes of the attack in 2003 were, Pakistan would have been the better place to go, correct? Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out that more Iraqis died in the 10 years before the American invasion of Iraq than the 10 years after. It was a pretty horrible regime. Uh, but if we're going to be worried about horrible regimes, we could be all over. But it was a horrible, it was an exporting regime. Right. I mean, right. it was monstrous. What, what do you think needs to happen? You now? know, so I've been humbled since then about what we can achieve. And I, you know, it took me multiple stages. Even in Afghanistan, I've been there a couple of times. And you would go there and the people in the NGOs at the UN, they really believed in the nation building part when I was there. And even that hasn't worked. It's just cultures are really hard. I was interviewing a Bush administration official, and I can't tell you who she was because we were off the record. But I once asked her, uh, you know, did you guys got to get the culture of Iraq wrong? And she said, I don't really believe in culture. I think you change the institutions of a society, you change the society. But that's wrong. That's wrong. Cultures are really hard to change. One of my favorite quotes, by the way, is by Daniel Patrick Moynihan which was, if I can remember correctly, the central conservative truth is that culture matters most. The central liberal truth is that government can change culture. And I think that's generally true, but you have to do it very slowly and cautiously. I think in my lifetime, and I could be wrong because I want to switch to the current election, what's your assessment of what do you think the American military, their, uh, our, our military policy should be in, or what do you predict it might be, in a Romney administration, if he wins in a couple of weeks, or if Obama continues, right. what changes well, might first, we see? I wouldn't uh, romanticize how popular we were. I mean, Nixon, when he was vice president, went to Latin America, and they had a riot and nearly killed him. Uh, we were not. Well, I, mean, we, I think we were popular pre-1960. I'm saying it's during, it's, it's during Vietnam it all started. All the wheels started to yeah, fall. Yeah, people off. never liked number one. I was at Camden Yards where the Orioles play, and there was a Yankee hat in the parking lot. And on the way out of the game, the fans started kicking the Yankee hat. And a crowd gathered, all of them kicking and chanting at this Yankee hut. <laughs> if you're the Yankees, you're not going to be popular. Um, nonetheless, I, I happen to think we're in a period of relative bipartisanship on foreign policy, no matter whether Obama wins or Romney wins. We are unpopular. You're right about that. 
were usually less unpopular than whoever the local power is. So the Japanese and the Koreans definitely want us around to ward off the Chinese. The Central Europeans definitely want us around to ward off the Russians. And so I think our role will be to, you know, we're not going to be going abroad doing a lot of stuff. Uh, our self-confidence isn't there. Our and money that budget isn't there. will be cut significantly. Right, exactly. But I do think we still have a role to just to try to stabilize the world and to keep uh, various regional hegemons from taking over. So let, let's talk about the election. Um, uh, and I wanted to ask you, you know, for me in my lifetime, I remember, and this again, this is my recollection of it. I could be, I'm not saying this is a fact, but in my lifetime, uh, there was a way that the Democrats behaved and there was a way that the Republicans behaved uh, during the nominating process and beyond. They seem to have switched places over the last 10 or 12 years. Why are the Republicans now like the Democrats and they're just fumbling the ball inside the red zone here? What the hell's going on? Because yeah. Obama was theirs for the taking. Do you agree? I completely agree. I mean, if you ask people, is the country heading in the right direction? 36% say yes. Should Obama be reelected? 43% say yes. Should be able to beat this guy. What happened? Uh, and may still. Well, you know, I, I do think the people who happen to be hired by Romney are not the A-team. And that's, that would be the consensus in Washington. There is an A-team, and he didn't want them. Why, why do you think he didn't want them? He didn't know. I think he didn't. Generally, he didn't know who the A-team was. But I think you could take Karl Rove, Michael Deaver, and Niccolo Machiavelli, put them up in Boston. They still couldn't run a good campaign with this guy. It's always the candidate. Reagan knew who he was. Romney knows who he is, but he's not running as that guy. And he's not that great an actor. So he's, uh, and so he's faking. I, I think he's genuinely a non-ideological guy running in an ideological Romney town. does make Reagan look like Marlon Brando, I yeah, must say. Yeah, I will say. <laughs> you know, by the way, Olivier. you know what? One of the really interesting conversations I once had with Bush, W, was, you know, when you do a press conference, you walk out of the hallway, and then you walk up to the podium about 30 yards. And you're on national TV that walk. And he once spent about five minutes describing to me how you do that walk. Where you put your hands, how you stride. Had thought it all through. And there's just some level of, of acting, I guess, how you present yourself. Um, Romney is pretending to be much more ideological than he really is. He, I don't think he really engages himself. He's pretending to be much more... Is that it right there that he's just not being true to himself and that's coming through, that's leaking yeah, out I, in his... I genuinely essence. think you can't fake it. I once got to have dinner with um, Tom Clancy when I was book review editor, and he, he just... I really like him. Really? I, I, this was my one and only meeting. You know, he's a good guy. Okay, and my memory of that dinner was he had just gone on a battleship and seen a new weapon system, and he was really excited. He was, it was fascinating to him. And as he was enthusing about it, I was thinking, you can't fake that. Unless you feel that, you can't write Tom Clancy novels. Right. And so Mitt Romney is pretending to be a Tea Party guy. It's just not who he is. And so as a result, sometimes he gets too hardcore. He steps on it too strong. Sometimes he pulls back. You know, I would just wish, I think he'll spend the rest of his life, assuming he loses, um, regretting that he didn't run as himself. Now, interesting, when you talk about running as yourself, and this may be a very naive question because I, I really don't know how these things work. Why don't people who are running in the, in the GOP now, I mean, Bush is a born-again Christian and he operated from that vantage point as such. Romney, of course, is not a born-again Christian. Uh, he's of a different uh, faith. 
Well, I think that there's a, there's, there's a critical element in our society who they're not so clear about Obama and they're waiting to be wooed, but they're not going to be wooed by an ultra-right-wing conservative crowd, especially on social issues. And I think that, it, that the Republican candidate who'd come in, this is just an opinion, the Republican candidate who'd come in and tamed the conservative right-wing, who got the heads of six or eight of these groups in a room and said, you've got to shut up. And don't be behind me squawking like some kind of a chorus until this thing is over. I got to get out there and I got to play this a little more moderately and we're going to win. Right. As long as you just tone it down, we're going to win. They don't do that. But don't you think it's going to cost them the election? Yes. Well, I think it's already cost them a bunch of Senate seats and could cost them a bunch more. Right. Uh, and so, you know, of course, from where I stand, I'd much rather they ran a much more What's the guy's name in Missouri? Ta- uh, uh, Aiken. Todd Aiken. Aiken. Well, why isn't he gone? How the hell did that happen? He may win. He may win. He may uh, win. You think he'll beat Claire? He's about 50-50 right now. Yeah, he may win. Uh, Missouri is a funny state. It's, it's going the other way. But funny. That's an me, interesting word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Go ahead. It's legitimate. One of the odd things about why he's losing right now is that he's losing like 2 3% nationally, but by 10 11% in these key swing states, which is why he's really behind. So why is that? Why is there a disjunction? It's because the Obama administration has gone brilliantly after they know they can't win white working class men, but they've hit white working class women. They've run these brilliant ads on Judge Judy, on Dr. Phil, and it's all, this guy's rich, he does not get you. And they started with Bain, they unfolded it with Medicare, and so if you look at the polling, white working class women nationwide, maybe about um, 39% support Obama, in the swing states where they're seeing these ads, it's 49%. And that's the margin right there. And so his problem, I think, is not so much ideology, it's that he's just a rich guy who doesn't get you. I've defended him on this because people say that you know, he's got a house in San Diego where he um, has a garage with elevators. And I've tried to point out that he has many other houses where the garages do not have elevators. <laughs> and it's not fair. Um, but, but, uh, he needs you, boy. Yeah. <laughs> but really you know, I, I think you. it's essentially, it's, he would be running more right than me, but I think he'd be winning if he were a candidate who related. Right. Um, the, what's your opinion of campaign finance reform? As you see the numbers pile up now, it'll be a record again in terms of spending in a presidential race. What's your opinion of campaign finance reform? Uh, so I'm for, for reform. I think our system what, is What style awful. of reform would you favor of what you've seen? Well, I, I've grown tired and exhausted by changing the rules here and there. I think you either got to go to full disclosure, complete disclosure, or full public finance. Right. Just one or the other. Because where we are now, and to me, the, you know, say, for example, on tax reform, I'm a big believer we have to simplify the tax code. But if every little provision in the tax code has some special interest who can drop $5 million into a congressional district, there's no way we're going to do that. How would you simplify the tax code? I would eliminate... Would be essentially be a flat tax? Well, no. Or I, stages of a flat tax I would, without... You know, there's a consensus. I would do what Simpson Bowles suggests, get rid of. I would cap the mortgage interest deduction. A lot of the deductions for people earning, say, above 150, and then lower the rates. Cap the mortgage deduction at what? It's, what is it now, a million? Well, what I'd do is I'd say if you... Say you earn over $250,000, you can only take so many deductions. And how you want to parcel out your deductions, that's fine by you. Charitable deductions. Yeah, I, might, I want to preserve that one. I believe in that one. Uh, but, but having said that, I, I think that Bush tax cuts should be repealed top to bottom. Right. The middle class parts, all the parts. Because um, 
you can tax the rich to forever until this island is empty and you will not raise enough money to pay right. expenses. People always threaten they're going to leave, but they really don't leave. Yeah, do they, they do. <laughs> they say they're always about to go to Canada. Maybe they move to Brooklyn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, what do you think of term limits? Definitely against them. You are. Why? Yeah, they empower staffs. It's also politics is really hard, and legislation is really hard, and things take a long time to learn. One of the thing, problems I'm in favor have, of term limits now. You are? Oh, yeah. And the Congress I am, yeah. If you're in and out in four years, first of all, you're thinking about your next job right away. Second, the permanent staff just takes over. I don't think anybody should serve in the Congress for more than 12 years. More importantly, you have to have one or the other. You either have to have the campaign finance reform at a level that's meaningful, you have to have the term limits. Because right now, my friends who work in Washington, the old, I mean, this was nauseating enough. Right when you think it can't get any more disgusting. My friends who all work on the Hill told me that these men and women in the U.S. Senate spend one full day, one full day out of five days on the phone raising money. All they do is, they don't do any Senate business one day out of the week, my friend said to me, in the last six years, it's become two full days. They're on the phone two days out of five, not doing any work that you sent them to do, and that they're raising money for their campaigns. That's a sin. That's a crime. I, that makes me sick. So I think, to, to me, two six-year terms and get them out of there. Uh, and I'm a liberal. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think the problem is more tribalism than money. We haven't had tax reform. We haven't had complicated legislation with possible exception of health care because we don't have the legislative skills of a Lyndon Johnson. People just don't know how to do it. Like I covered tax reform. There was a guy named Packwood, Bob Packwood, yes. Dan Rostenkowski, uh, both of whom had cursed me, either went to jail or resigned in disgrace. But, uh, <laughs> but, but they knew how to legislate. They were really good at Bill Bradley. And that takes time. You've got to learn to do that. Yeah. And by the way, I think the people in their first year are just as money grubber as the people in their 32nd year. But I, but I want to just finish by asking you that you also, um, you wrote a book or you wrote a segment of your book about marriage? What was your... I, I wrote a book called The Social Animal, which is really a compendium of the research on unconscious processes and what leads to happiness. What motivated you to write that book? Well, the short answer, the official answer is that I wanted to know why kids drop out of high school. And it turns out the factors are determined very early and within the first 18 months of life. You can take a look at, at a kid who's 18 months, how the kid relates to mom and predict with 77% accuracy who's going to graduate from high school. There are certain emotional attachments. A kid who can form an attachment early on is going to know how to form an attachment with teachers and peers. Life is going to be okay. If you can't form attachments, um, life will be very frustrating. That doesn't mean you're determined, you're sentenced to life at 18 months. You can have a mentor later on that'll change you. But those early formations are really important. You've been married to the same woman for how many years? Uh, 26 years. What's, what's the secret? Uh, <laughs> I just got remarried. Re you know, what's I, the secret? I'm, I'm not smart on this, but I did read a really good blog post on this. Uh, it, my wife would kill me if I started giving advice on how to do this, marry someone really patient. But I read this blog post, and one of the pieces of advice was, brag about your spouse and let them overhear you. <laughs> now, that seemed like very good advice. Another one of piece of advice she gave was, uh, sometimes they tell you, you know, never go to bed mad. Sometimes you just got to go to bed. Go to sleep, sleep on it, cook breakfast for the other person. Sometimes you just go to sleep. And this struck me as very realistic advice. But, you know, the, part of the, what the book was about was first how we find our mates. And so a lot of it, a lot of it is unconscious. And what a critical decision you were saying. Because yeah. I feel the same way. I mean, I wrote a book about that was a critique 
of the family law system and the divorce system when I got divorced and how it was just being thrown into this uh, quicksand. It was just so painful and so agonizing. And I, and, I, and I say that to people all the time. I say, this decision is, it is fundamentally the most critical decision you're going to make in your life, who you, I mean, if you're of that mind, to marry and to, and, and to, and to make, make that kind of a home with someone and, and make it legal. And, and, the, and, the, and the criteria with which people use to get married now. My dear friend who left the country for several years, he's, a, he's an artist, and he and his wife, after running an art gallery in New York for many years, they just took off and they went to the Italian countryside or something. And he was gone for like nine years and I said, what's one thing you notice? He says, all these kids with these devices in their hands. He said, I came home and they have all these devices in their hand. And I said, yeah, that really is alarming, isn't it? He says, he says these kids will never get to know each other in real time. He said, they're never gonna stare into each other's eyes over a table with a checkered tablecloth and a candle shoved into a bottle of Matus. <laughs> He's, he goes, he said, eating a really shitty Italian meal, but over the course of a couple of hours, really get to know each other in real time. Everybody's so hurried, in such a hurry to get to the fast no. He said to me, that's created this horrible mechanism for intimacy in our society. Yeah. Well, so the, I go, go to colleges, I tell kids, if you have a great career and a crappy marriage, you'll be miserable. If you have a crappy career and a great marriage, you'll be happy. So every course you take in college should be about who to marry. So, like, you should take literature courses, theater courses, science courses. Think hard about this one. They look at me like I'm crazy. But that, that is absolutely true. So if you want to know what correlates to happiness, money correlates uh, a little, but when you hit a certain point, it stops. Age correlates to happiness. So people in their 20s are happy, and then they go through a shallow U-shaped curve, and the nadir of happiness for the average person is age 47. And that's called having teenage children. And then, and then they, they hit the, spot on. The, spot on. the peak happiness is the first 10 years after retirement. But the, the people who are happy, marriage is equal to doubling your income. Having a good marriage produces the same happiness gain as doubling your income. I tell people that the rule in marriage is the rule that I failed to apply in my movie career, which is just say no until you have to say yes. <laughs> And so you meet that woman where you say yeah. to yourself, she's out there, and the idea that she's out there and I don't have her, it just drives you insane. Yeah. You have to have her. I go, yeah. then you marry her. It's still until you feel that way, then maybe though. you just have to take your time. Um, we're going to take some questions, I think. Yes? One audience member asked about the gridlock in Washington and wondered about a pathway to resolve that problem. This was Brooks' response. You know, say when you were at GW, if you asked people, uh, do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time? In those days, 70% said yes, 77% said yes. Now if you ask people, do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time, it's 19% or 9%. And so there's just no trust that government can do the, you know, the big things. And so I, I'm in favor of doing some big things. Uh, and I would, if you know, my druthers, we would have just this big human capital agenda where we would do a lot of our early childhood education. Alternative energy, would that be one of them? Well, I think that would be one of them. Uh, I'm, you know, I happen to think fracking is a good thing. Uh, why? 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 Because I think it provides us um, cheaper energy that's much cleaner than coal and right. oil. Let's talk about that because fracking, where and you can, I'd love to hear your uh, your opinion and or your facts for that matter, because everybody seems. <laughs> I mean, I've got my own set. Everybody has their own set of facts about fracking because I'm very anti-fracking because I mean, of course, the natural gas being cleaner than coal thing is is, is a given. 
But, I mean, we can't have a Price-Anderson Act for the uh, natural gas industry where if they spoil all the water in the southern tier of the state of New York in these designated zones, I mean, Andrew Cuomo is going to say, here's a zone, and, and I'm being very glib about it, but it's basically like, everybody raise your hand who wants to have fracking down in the southern tier of New York and those Binghamton-adjacent areas that want it, he's going to probably let them have it. And then when all that water gets screwed up, if it does, if all that water gets contaminated, who are they going to come to to clean up that water? Right. Who are they going to hand the bill to to clean up that water? You want to say that burning natural gas is cleaner than oil. I agree with you. But the same argument goes with nukes. The nuclear industry will sit there before 9-11, before we got into the terrorist target issue. They were sitting there going, well, you know, Yucca Mountain, we don't know, and the stuff's just going to sit there in a pile, and we haven't figured it out yet. But nuclear is cleaner than oil, I mean, uh, coal. Everybody just keeps saying it's cleaner than coal. But I'm saying, what happens if the water issue becomes a big problem, let alone all the stuff that Bobby Kennedy riffs on about the roads they're going to build and who's going to pay? They, I mean, they got trucks going up there now that are smashing all the roads to pieces. And you think that those uh, natural gas companies are going to pay for it? Here's the P.S. I don't mean to mug you here now. <laughs> but, here's the, but here's the P.S. LNG is building all these ports right now on the East Coast. And is that gas? I mean, do all these companies that are fracking saying, we're going to go down into the southern tier of New York and up in Ohio and northern Pennsylvania, and we're going to blow all these holes in the ground and maybe risk having some earthquakes and maybe spoiling all these trillions of gallons of water because we're going to get this gas, which is going to lower the price of natural gas and fuel here in the United States. Bullshit. They're going to pipe that stuff to the coast and put it on tankers and put it on the market and go sell it to the Chinese or sell it on the open market. It's not going to lower the cost of energy here. So why are you in favor of fracking? <laughs> Let me get my pen. Get I my guess pen I want to hear your opinion first. Uh, <laughs> no, but I just am burning yeah, on this okay. issue. So I'm where President Obama is. So I'm a good Democrat on this issue and where I think the Republicans Touché. are. <laughs> and so basically there's been a ton of research done on this. And like every single energy source, it has costs and it has environmental costs. The benefits to fracking, I saw a Yale study on this, are measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars. The costs, including what you just mentioned, are measured in the hundred millions of dollars. So you can take some of the benefits and regulate it so the, the report, costs are mitigated. And the, and, the report, and the report that calculated those costs was written by who? It was Yale University. I don't oh, know, Yale? some scholars, okay. so a very fine institution. And so basically, if you, are, if you think the, uh, there is one price of gas in the world. There is one price of oil in sure. the world. So it will, if we lower the, if we, no matter, if we increase the supply, tremendously, which is what's happening, the cost is going down. If you're making $25,000 a year or $35,000 a year, it really actually kind of matters to you. If you're sitting out there in western Pennsylvania or South Dakota or North Dakota without a job, it kind of matters to you that there's a 50 buck an hour job to you. If you want there to be a working class, but this kind of stuff an hour, but, 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 it's proven, but, but it's proven that it's a 50 buck an hour job up in the southern tier of New York and up in northern Pennsylvania for people that are coming from Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana. None of those people that are getting the high paying jobs are from that area. They're bringing gas people down from the south and bringing them up there. You go up to the fracking zones in New York and all the license plates are from down south. Well, and they're going to take that job and they're going to take that money and they're, they're not going to spend it up there. They're going to spend it on North condoms Dakota. and cigarettes up there and then they're going to go home. There are a lot of condom makers. But, 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 but I you keep just... coming back to condoms. Uh, the, uh, it's a big if issue. You go, if, you, <laughs> if you go it's to North Dakota, you pull into a McDonald's and you push the button in the, the drive-thru, you are talking to somebody from Texas. 
because they cannot find anybody to work at McDonald's in the drive-through because everyone's out in the oil fields or in the gas fields. And th those places are becoming I'm extremely well. I'm a vegetarian, well so I don't care. Okay. <laughs> but, but I'm saying that this is, sure, there are costs. And sure, it has to be regulated. And by the way, the responsible gas companies want it regulated. They don't want the irresponsible companies. But the minute you doing. talk about them, I mean, again, and again, and I know that there's a, there's a, there's a good uh, cover for this. I mean, I, I've heard it before. But the minute you talk about, well, the, the, it's a hundreds of billions in benefits and it's hundreds of millions in costs and it's cleaner than coal. And I want to sit there and I go, then why aren't we going renewable? All my friends who work in renewable say if you built derricks on the Great Lakes for wind turbines, we have enough power from wind turbines on the Great Lakes, on derricks, they would build on the Great Lakes, floating derricks on the Great Lakes in the United States would power one third of the country. And if you put photovoltaic elements in the southwestern United States, you'd power another quarter of the country with photovoltaic. And, and, and if you want to get serious about cutting costs in Americans' energy independence, we need to have the Apollo project Look, of, of renewable energy. I, in this I, I Why don't they spend I, any money on that? Forget about Solyndra. Because, what do you think about that? Uh, because I think gas is a gateway to those renewables. We are not there yet. It is just simply not competitive. They when are will we be there and how do we get there? What's we have to have more technological advance, so they're economically competitive. They are simply not economically competitive. But the government has to kickstart China that. is now closing down their renewables because the, even they, with the massive subsidies, cannot export. They've run out of place to export to. They just can't afford it. They, these renewable industries are growing. They're going to be the future. But it's going to take a little while to get to there. When, until we pump the last drop of gas out of the ground? No, well, it'll, it'll probably be a, t a tooth course thing. As renewables get cheaper, they'll come down to a market price, and as gas becomes dearer, it'll rise up. I think that the, you know, I think that the government has to make renewables cheaper by investing that money themselves to, to, to kickstart that program. Um, the last thing I want to say before we go is that, you know, one thing I'm mindful of is uh, as Obama's term uh, may end. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? We really don't know what's going to happen. We live in that world now where... You know, if the election were called now, they're saying Obama would win, but we really don't know what's going to happen. If Obama were gone, what I wanted to ask you is, what do you think would have been different in a Hillary Clinton administration if she had been president? And yeah. what do you think will, will become of Hillary Clinton now in her career henceforth? Yeah. Let me ask, answer the second while I think about the first. Um, first of all, I think the Democrats have a reasonably weak bench for 2016, no matter who, whether he wins or not. So I think there will be a big draft Hillary movement. I don't think at the moment, from what I understand, of people who really know her, that she's of a mind to do that right now. She's tired. But a few years of resting, I think the opportunity will be. <laughs> it's tough to not be the first uh, woman president. So I, I, would, I think she Very still seductive. has a, a future, in part because there just aren't a lot of Democrats who are sort of obvious <clears throat> candidates. As for the difference between the Well, there's the some two, who view themselves as obvious candidates. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, every Democrat in the U.S. Senate. But, uh, uh, but as for the differences, one of the things, I'm a big personal admirer of Obama. I've known him for a long time. I have covered him and spoken to him a lot. But one of his weaknesses that I think she would have done a better job is personal relationships with fellow Democrats. And so He's a bit antiseptic, they say. You know, when you, um, you know, most politicians, they... You know, they, they grab you, they rub your cheek, they just, they invade your personal space. So, um, you know, you spend a lot of time around them. They're just animalistic in their... Uh, and, but they, they, they connect. Obama, you know, with the staff, they'll, they'll say, you're going to such and such a city, why don't you call the mayor up and invite him to ride with you from the airport downtown? They'll say, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. 
And He's then playing p- words with friends. Maybe yeah. And then the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has his priority. They kicked him no, but, off but, but, he, but he really, but he really won't. Uh, he, he just, you no, know, he's like, politics he, I, in my view, he has a writer's personality. He likes the solitary time to think. And so he just doesn't do that. And even going up to the Hill, there was a call that was made to the White House in, a couple of years ago. They wanted to send him up to lobby for a piece of legislation. The senators called up and said, don't send him. He doesn't like us. We know it. It won't help. That's a bad place to be when it seems un- when you're told yeah. preemptively that it's undoable. Right. It's kind of so a tough thing. I, I think she would have been a little better. She wouldn't have been as great as her husband. Uh, one of the people in his administration, you know, Obama doesn't make the call to the Hill. Clinton would make, sit there and make th- 32 calls in a row. His problem was his position on call 32 was 180 degrees from where it was on call one. <laughs> um, but, but he would make the calls. And so I do think she would have um, done the inside game. I think she's done a good job in the position she's in now? Yes, I do. I do. So think do I. Yeah. I think she's been a great yeah. Secretary of State. Yeah. Great Secretary of State. I wanted to end by saying, and I mean this sincerely, uh, not only are you the most likable and charming conservative I've ever met, <laughs> you're by far the most likable and charming writer for the New York Times I've ever met. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming. Thanks to the Public Theater and to Jeremy McCarter of the Public Forum. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.